John chapter 2, verse 23, through until chapter 3, verse 15. So John 2, 23 to 3, 15. This is God's word. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. You may have had the conversation with someone at some stage, if you're having somewhat of an apologetic discussion about the Christian faith, and sometimes the conversation gets to the debate between evolution and and creation, and often the question will be, well, if God created everything, then who created God? Which is a wrong question. It's a quite frankly, an illogical question to ask. It's trying to understand a supernatural being in natural terms, not in the sense that God is unnatural, but in the sense that he is infinite. He is beyond comprehension and finite man tries to understand a supernatural God using natural means. Because of course, the answer is that God uh, wasn't created. He is the uncaused cause. He Hasn't, uh, he doesn't have a beginning, he simply is. And this is the supernatural reality to uh, the natural man. This is the theme, this is like the overarching theme that we have before us here in this interaction with Nicodemus, when natural man tries to understand the supernatural through natural means. It just doesn't work. Something supernatural has to happen. And this is what we will see in the interaction uh, with Nicodemus, a natural man, coming before the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the gospel writer John bridges the gap between where we left off last week in Jesus cleansing the temple and then jumping into chapter 3 in the new birth. In just these few comments 
from verses 23 to 25, where he connects the cleansing of the temple to the new birth by commenting on the relationship that Jesus has with these people. And he says here from verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem, that is Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed or many trusted in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is a theme that will pop up again and again through the Gospel of John. The fickle faith of man. We know that there are people who seemingly trust in Jesus. They've seen the signs. John says here in verse uh, 23 and 24, there were many who believed in his name. It's actually um, a bit of a wordplay from John where believe is just the word for trust. It's the same uh, word as Jesus didn't entrust himself, just a different tense for you um, grammar nerds out there. It's basically saying uh, many trusted in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. So there are people who clearly have the appearance of trusting in him. They've seen the signs. They've seen something uh, supernatural and they are drawn to him. And who wouldn't be? And this is part of the point because it doesn't take anything supernatural to be drawn to signs and wonders. If someone, uh, we're going to have lunch after this service, if someone is able to feed another 5,000 people that come with the food that we have, that's fascinating. And I'm going to be drawn to that person. Nothing supernatural has to happen for me to be intrigued by that. That's actually a natural response to signs and wonders. It doesn't take anything supernatural for these people to see that Jesus is a resourceful man who can provide. I mean, he can turn water into wine. He can provide enough wine for the rest of the wedding feast. It doesn't take anything supernatural for the natural man to be drawn to that. So the problem that John highlights here, where people trust in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them, is that natural man here has no allegiance to Jesus himself. These people do not specifically have an allegiance to Jesus himself. And that's why Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. He knows what's in man. If they genuinely were coming to him, we know that all those who come to him, he will never cast out. But there is clearly something just natural about the draw card that people experience here. They're being drawn to something by natural means, and hence Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. We'll cover this in John 6 when we get to it. In John 6, we see a few of these scenarios. We know that in uh, John 6, pe uh, people follow Jesus after he feeds the 5,000 and they follow him. And Jesus specifically says, you are coming to me, not because you saw the sign, not because you saw the sign that I'm the bread of life, but because you ate your fill, because you just want more bread. You just want something that natural people want. He goes on in John chapter 6, and he says to people, this is a way to lose the crowd. Uh, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Naturally, people say, what is this guy talking about? And then we read in John 6, 61, Jesus actually says to them, oh, do you take offense to this? And then he goes on and then we read just a few verses later in John 6, 66, that many left him then. 
Many walked away. They took offense to that. That was the stumbling block that they had to actually see him as the sacrificial substitute where we would, in a sense, eat his flesh and drink his blood as the only means of cleansing. Many people walked away. So this is a theme that John introduces here that's developed later on, this fickle faith of man, where it's not genuine faith, it's a trust in something else. And Jesus very clearly knows what is in the heart of man. That's what we read here. He didn't need anyone to bear witness about man. He knew what was in man, and that is a dead heart that cannot truly seek Jesus unless something supernatural happens. He knows that is within us. So these comments from John here in 23 to 25 of chapter 2 sort of set the scene for this interaction with Nicodemus. And in the interaction with Nicodemus from chapter 3, we see a very similar thing of someone coming to Jesus, seemingly trusting in him. Read what Nicodemus says here in verse 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that you've come from God. That seems pretty good. But Jesus doesn't then say, well, that's great, Nicodemus. Now, let me lead you in a prayer to ask me into your heart and then, you know, take you off and we'll continue this path. He actually, if anything, creates more of a barrier. As Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you've come from God. And Jesus says in verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God, which is Jesus saying, unless something supernatural happens, you can't see anything. You can't truly know God unless something supernatural happens. So let's just bring clarity to the issue at hand here through a bit of a, a problem and then the solution. The problem here is when natural man comes to seek something supernatural through natural means. When natural man is confronted by something supernatural and continues to think solely in natural means. This is part of the problem here. Nicodemus is a bright and intelligent guy. He's the teacher of Israel. He's either the most prominent teacher or he is extremely prominent. So he's not a fool, but the reality is he is spiritually dead. He is still thinking in natural terms. And so he comes to Jesus. We read that he comes at night. Uh, it's probably not worth building a whole doctrine of like shame in, in this. Maybe he did feel a bit of shame and so he came at night, but we know that rabbis uh, would often do their work at night because there was far fewer distractions. So it was also a normal thing to come and have a bit of a Q&A at night time where people weren't around so that you could actually have um, concentration. That aside, Nicodemus comes to him by night and he gives the appearance of divine revelation, almost. He says, we know you've come from God. No one can do these things unless God is with him. But Jesus isn't fooled by this. He doesn't follow Nicodemus's line of thought. He immediately strengthens that barrier that must happen so that someone knows that something supernatural has to happen for this person to actually know anything about the kingdom of God. So we see that Nicodemus is still thinking in natural fleshly ways in verse four, because after Jesus says, unless you are born from above, 
you will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? It's, of course, like an incredulous response from Nicodemus. He probably has a bit of sarcasm in what he's saying. In, in his mind, there is clearly no logical way this can happen. You can't physically enter in and be born again. This is impossible. That's part of the point. So Nicodemus here is thinking purely in natural terms. This can't happen. Just like there can't be anything before God. That can't happen. It's impossible. He's God. He is. Likewise, this naturally cannot happen. You naturally cannot be born again. This is something completely unnatural to our reality as we experience it. And this is the problem. When natural man comes to a supernatural God, in natural ways. So the core of the problem here is that the natural self is dead. The problem could be stated in another way, when dead people try to live. It's impossible. Can a dead person live? No. So what is the solution? The solution is, of course, the supernatural new birth. This is the solution to the problem of natural dead man. He must be supernaturally born again, born from above. So Jesus' words here in verse 3, you must be born again, literally born above. The, the word is the same word if you're in chapter 3. In verse 31, where we read, he who comes from above is above all. This is the same word that's used in verse 3. Born again is a fine translation, but that's because we understand it to be something supernatural. It comes from above. It comes from God. It's the same birth that John, the gospel writer, introduced in chapter 1 when he said from verse 12, to all who did receive him, that is to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God, children who are born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the supernatural birth. Nothing natural about it. Not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, not of natural descent. It's a supernatural new birth. So this is the solution to the problem of natural man and his relationship toward the supernatural God. Natural man has to be made alive. We are dead in sin. So just to summarize the, the flow of thought here, natural man cannot truly know God. Natural man is all of us who are dead in sin as a result of the fall, and natural man cannot truly know anything about God, even though people give the appearance of coming to Jesus, like we read, they cannot truly know anything about God because something supernatural has to happen. And the supernatural event is called the new birth. So let's look at this new birth more closely. In verse three, John uh, writes here that Jesus calls it a birth from above. And in verse five, we read Jesus calling it a birth uh, where someone is born of water and the spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a whole host of interpretations on this, and I'm not going to um, spend too much time, but for those who are particularly interested in um, the theology of this, then I hope I can please you in this. And for those who aren't, I hope you will eventually be interested in it, but I'm not going to spend 20 minutes talking about this. But I think it's important to look at the idea of born from above and then how that relates to born of water and the spirit. Is Jesus talking about different births here? I don't think so. I think that Jesus here is talking about one birth. In verse three, he's saying you must be born again, born from above. And then he is clarifying or amplifying this in verse five, when he says one must be born of water and the spirit and the birth of water and spirit is the same as the birth from above. It's one new birth that he is talking about this. So the water in verse five is not referring to a natural birth and then the spirit to the supernatural birth. The water and spirit together are these common themes that describe cleansing and that spiritual renewal. It's the same as being born from above, as is often the case in scripture, where you say one thing and then you say the same thing in a different way to amplify its meaning. This is what is happening here in verse five. Jesus is clarifying or amplifying the birth that he mentions in verse uh, five and Some people think that because in verse six, Jesus goes on to say flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit to spirit, that this is sort of the flesh is in relationship to the water, the uh, spirit is in relationship to the spirit. I don't think that's happening. I think what Jesus there is saying, basically, flesh gives birth to flesh. Natural people can't, this can't happen naturally. The spirit gives birth to spirit. This has to be supernatural. The new birth, which is the birth from above, the birth of water and spirit, is the supernatural birth. Last point to really satisfy those who might have a different opinion. In the original language, there is no definite article, which is a definite article is just where you have the, the word the. There is no definite article. So when we have verse five, water and the spirit, there's actually no the there. It's just water and spirit, which isn't to say that it's not spirit inspired or not a work of the spirit it of course is but i think the reason is because it's uh john recording it trying to say actually these are not mutually exclusive they're not in opposition to each other the birth the new birth is a birth of water and spirit together and we will see how this fits in so this is one new birth that jesus is talking about that nicodemus in natural terms can't understand It's a supernatural new birth from above. It's a birth of water and the spirit. And there is one thing about this new birth that's not actually new. It is a new birth. There's one thing that's not actually new. And that is that it actually has its background. It has been around concealed throughout the Old Testament. So this birth has its background in the Old Testament scriptures. This becomes clear because if you read in verse 10, Jesus answers Nicodemus after Nicodemus again says, how can this be? This is impossible. And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. I don't think Jesus is saying that Nicodemus without Jesus saying anything, had to know, okay, there's definitely going to be a new birth 
John the Baptist is going to bring it about uh, by pointing to the Messiah who's going to come and he's going to die. I don't think Jesus expected Nicodemus to know all of the ins and outs, but I think Jesus expected Nicodemus as he is talking about this and saying, you must be born from above and it's got to be a birth of water and spirit. I think he would expect the teacher of Israel to be saturated with the scriptures to understand all of these themes of water and the spirit throughout the Old Testament and how they were ultimately pointing to this so that as Jesus unpacks it, they should be saying, of course, of course, this is what was going to happen. So this has its background throughout the Old Testament. It's not as if it's plainly spelt out uh, clearly, but all of the ingredients are there so that as you piece it together, it becomes clear. We've already seen a lot of these themes of water and the spirit. Actually, if you go back in your own time and read over uh, Jesus turning the water into wine and then cleansing the temple, the same themes of water and spirit are very clearly there in this idea of restoration and renewal. Uh, remember that um, as Jesus turns water into wine, uh, we're reminded of passages like Isaiah 25, where we read, of God speaking of restoration. And he says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged, well-refined. Basically saying there's going to be a, just a fantastic, unimaginable feast full of well-aged wine, a rich, abundant feast. And then you have Jesus here his first sign that he points to at a wedding, turning water into wine out of an abundance. There is an abundance of uh, supply of this wine and it has all of its background in this restorative promises that God gives to his people. Now, in a similar way, the themes of water and spirit are often used to convey the idea of renewal and restoration elsewhere. So in Isaiah 44, you might know it because it comes in the context of all of these uh, near the servant songs where God is speaking of his chosen servant and he's speaking of restoration and renewal, redeeming Israel. He goes on after this to talk about how Cyrus will be the one to then help restore Jerusalem. It's all pictures of restoration and renewal. And in Isaiah 44, in verse three, God says, I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Now that's parallelism in Hebrew scriptures. Parallelism, I wouldn't ever really talk like this, but if I said, tonight I'm gonna to go on a walk around Lake Tugrenong, a casual stroll by the lake. I don't know why I would say that, but I'm trying to, I'm saying the same thing, but just amplifying it. This is what's happening here. It's very common in Hebrew scriptures to say this, the same thing again, but in a different way. And there's actually a double parallelism. So you have, I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. That's saying the same thing. I'm going to pour water out where it needs it. And then I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. How can God pour his spirit upon offspring without giving a blessing to descendants? It's the same thing. And then both of these together 
come under the ultimate banner of restoration of renewal, of water coming where it's needed, of God's spirit coming where it is needed. It's this idea of water and spirit together to give this picture of restoration and renewal. The most common passage, there are many others, but one of the most common passages is, of course, Ezekiel 36, where we have this idea of sprinkling clean water on his people and then giving them a new heart and a new spirit. God is going to sprinkle clean water upon his people and he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. And it's fascinating that immediately after this in Ezekiel 36, you then have in chapter 37, which is the valley of dry bones, where people are brought to life. Israel is pictured as being restored as the breath goes into them and all of a sudden these bones take on flesh and they begin to live. So you have water and the spirit together immediately preceding this idea of life coming to dryness. Now, this is not only in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. And we went over this in Titus. So just turn to Titus chapter 3. This is the last passage that we'll look at to help us understand this. Titus chapter 3, from verse 4, Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. So He saved us, not through any natural means that we could bring about, but supernaturally by Him extending mercy to us. And then read in the second half of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration here is the, the same word for new birth. That's the, the same word for new birth, regeneration here. It's the regeneration that comes through washing and then renewal that comes by the Spirit. So in the new birth, we receive the washing, just like Jesus shows in cleansing the temple, purifying us, washing us clean, sprinkling water upon us to make us clean and purify us. Same idea as in Ephesians 5, where Paul describes husbands and wives as Christ in the church. And he says that Christ uh, sanctifies his church, cleansing her by the washing of the water of the word. It's this idea of purification. And then the renewal of the spirit is where we are made new, just like the new wine. We are made new. We are recreated by the work of the spirit, who is the agent of creation. We are made alive in Christ. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is new. The new creation has come. The old has passed away. He is new. So this is the new birth, a cleansing and renewing work of God, something supernatural, something marvelous beyond all of our hopes and dreams. And it is the entry point to the beginning of all of these restorative promises that God gives to his people all throughout the Old Testament. The new birth brings us in so that in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. So this is... The summary of the new birth. Now, how does this new birth come about? We've got three aspects of how this new birth comes about from our passage. The first is that it is a complete work of a sovereign God. 
That should be quite clear already. It is a supernatural work. It is the complete work of a sovereign God. Read in verse 8 of chapter 3, back in John. The Spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't obviously see wind. We don't see it. We see the effects of wind. We see trees blowing. We hear whistling sounds. We can't see the wind. So you cannot control or dictate the wind in any way. We merely witness the wind blowing about and all of these things being affected by the wind. We can't see where it comes from or where it's going. We just see all of the effects of it. Likewise, the new birth is the effect of God's spirit bringing someone to life. So the new birth is not the cause. This is important. The new birth is not the cause of God's spirit coming. So you cannot say that a dead person all of a sudden makes themselves alive and then God pours out his spirit upon them and regenerates them. How can a dead person do anything? They are dead. It's like saying, there's a tree, if you're, you're looking at a tree, there is no wind present and you believe that somehow that tree is going to start wiggling on its own and moving about and then the wind will come. We wouldn't think that way. It's going to start moving about because there's wind that begins blowing it. This is what Jesus is saying. No one knows where it, this new birth comes from. Of course, we know it comes from above, but in the sense you can't see. There's nothing natural about it. It's a supernatural work of God. It is not something dictated by human will in any way. It is the wonderful mystery of God. The new birth is where the supernatural comes to accomplish what the natural cannot. It is a supernatural new birth. Like Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are dead in them. And then he goes on to say, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. He made us alive for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This, the grace and the faith is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. So this is very clear to say that this is a sovereign work of God. Now, sometimes people object to this in many ways. I'm just going to pick one common objection, which is where people say, well, what about free will? What about free will? The first thing I would say is that free will is really a philosophical idea that we often impose upon Scripture, that we're deriving not from Scripture, but from a philosophical idea of free will. And there's a whole spectrum of what people mean by that. So it's not often helpful if we take a philosophical idea and then say, well, what Scripture clearly says can't be because of this idea. That's not a helpful way to go about things. It doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but I think it means we have to do a lot more work. The second thing is that God has very clearly demonstrated that he is more than willing to impose himself upon our will in his gracious act of salvation. Think of Paul on the Damascus Road. Knocks him to the ground and blinds him. 
That's a violation of his will. Imagine Paul saying he's violated. I mean, he couldn't say anything. He's just been knocked to the ground and blinded. He's just in a state of utter shock. God very clearly shows that he is able to do this. It's, it's like, I mean, to come up with a subjection that God imposes himself on our will is like if someone drowned, if you were there and someone drowned, they went under and you saw it all and they're under and they're not breathing anymore because they're at the bottom of a 10 meter pool. And then someone comes in a minute later, jumps in, brings them out, brings them back to life. And could you imagine the audacity of someone saying, you just violated their will. Hey, you just brought them to life against their will. No, they're dead. They've they've lost that. They're dead. You can't get much worse than dead. In God's gracious mercy, he comes and he brings us to life. I think sometimes a lot of people in the modern church sort of tend to think about this idea of salvation as though we're swimming in this little baby pool and there's a much better pool way over here. And like, sure, baby pools are okay. We have one. It's nice to sit in. But of course, I'd rather be in a huge lagoon type pool. And sometimes we think God is kind of saying, hey, come over to my pool. It's much better over here. It's much better. You've got room and space, but you just make up your own mind. You can stay in there if you want, but you've got to make the decision. That's not biblical. That's not what scripture says here. It's a sovereign work of God. It is more like us drowning Beyond drowning, we've drowned, we're dead, we're at the bottom of the muddy ocean and God in his mercy comes and he picks us up, he plants us on the rock, he washes us, he cleanses us and makes us new. That is the new birth. It is the supernatural accomplishing what the natural cannot manufacture in any way. And Nicodemus understands this. I think Nicodemus understands this by his incredulous response. He just rightly realizes that what Jesus is saying is impossible. Man can't go back in. This can't, something beyond our comprehension has to happen. Something supernatural has to happen. It must be a sovereign work of God. And this is why this is the most humbling of doctrines for us, because it leaves absolutely no room for boasting. Imagine some pathetic person who can't swim and who drowns and then is dead. And then in just a um, miraculous work, they are brought to life. And then they look back upon all of the other people who have drowned in pride. That's ridiculous. That would never happen. This leaves no room for boasting because we're reminded that we bring nothing to the table. It is God's sovereign mercy. So the supernatural must be present for the natural man to truly know God. This is a sovereign work of God. The second aspect, this new birth only comes about through death. This life only comes through death. Without the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, there would be, of course, no hope of the new birth. We are dead in sin. So God cannot offer new life. He cannot offer new birth unless there is a payment for the sin 
which leaves us dead because the wages of sin is death. He can't offer anything unless there is a payment, unless his justice is satisfied. So the new birth, of course, doesn't come about because God was feeling extra forgiving on that day and just decided to bring us to life without the payment for the sin which caused us to die being delivered. The new birth comes about because God provides a sacrificial substitute to satisfy his justice. So the death of Christ pays for sin. And then the resurrection proves that the payment is satisfied. It proves that God's wrath is satisfied. His justice is satisfied as Jesus enters fully into death and then rises again to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And this... The death and resurrection of Christ opens the door to the new birth. And we have to be careful that we don't abstract all of these doctrines. They always center on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because without that, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, what life are we reborn into? If that didn't happen, there's no new birth. It's as if to say we're, we're born again and God says, now you can have a second chance to try and do it on your own. That's not good. We're just going to end up in the exact same place. The new birth comes because Jesus entered fully into human flesh, lived the perfect life, died and rose again. And now the new birth means we are born into that life, into the life of Christ so that we receive all of his perfect record. And he takes all of our sin and shame and it is covered in Christ. This is the new birth. It only comes about through the death of Christ. And this is the background, just as we draw to a close in the uh, last few verses of chapter three, where Jesus goes on to speak of the, the bronze serpent being lifted up. In verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may receive eternal life. We remember this is in Numbers 21, where the Israelites were grumbling and complaining and God sent fiery serpents so that many of them died. And then he instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and hold it up. And when any would look at the bronze serpent, they would be healed. And Jesus here says, after he has just finished saying to Nicodemus, from verse 11 to 13, it's really Jesus saying, the only way that you can understand anything about heavenly things is if someone from heaven reveals them to you, and that is the Son of Man. I'm revealing that to you. And then he goes on to say, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that all those who look to Jesus as he is lifted up upon the cross as he is exalted as the suffering servant, as the savior of the world, all who look to him will receive healing. The healing is the disease of sin. We are cleansed of that. And we then receive eternal life. Eternal life is, is life of the age. It's life of the age to come, which we'll look at this more next week when we begin from verse 16. So I won't touch on it too much now. But Jesus is saying, just as Moses had to lift up the snake 
when all of the people, as a result of their grumbling and complaining, were poisoned and had a, a, a disease that was ultimately going to result in their death, as they looked up, they were healed in this way, as I am lifted up upon the cross, all who look and turn to, to me, to the Son of Man, will be healed. The new birth comes through the death of our suffering servant hung upon the cross, where true healing, true purification, true restoration comes. And then finally, the last point, the normative means that God brings about the new birth, the normal way that God brings about the new birth is through proclaiming Christ. So God can, if he is pleased, save people in a Saul-like fashion like we saw. But we know that the normative means God has given to bring about the supernatural is through his word being proclaimed. Paul says this in Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they call on whom they have not believed? How will they believe on whom they have not heard? How will they hear unless there is a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? It's this golden chain, this circular chain to say, how is this going to happen? Well, it's because someone is going to go out. Where are they going to be sent from? They're going to be sent ultimately from the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, which we see in Acts 13 takes place in the church. We think of Paul and Barnabas being sent out. They will be sent out to proclaim the very work which saved them. And as that word is proclaimed, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is the beauty of God's redemptive work. He actually delights in having his people partake in proclaiming the very work which saved them. He delights in having his children be about his business, which is one of bringing glory to him as he saves lost, wicked people, brings them out of darkness and into light. I want to finish with just an account of a very famous preacher who demonstrates this. If you, a um, natural question to ask if someone is not born again is, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm born again? And the simple answer is, well, you will hear. And as you hear, you trust in Jesus Christ. The word goes out as we proclaim. It's not like we're looking for a tag on someone to say born again or not. We are just going about our task in faithfulness, proclaiming a wonderful Christ and trusting that the supernatural event of the spirit rebirthing someone will happen as the word goes out, as we cast a broad net and at times the wonderful miracle of the new birth will be present as the word goes out and someone all of a sudden in supernatural ways, there is nothing naturally, uh, nothing to be explained naturally. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. This happened to a very famous preacher, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, when he was in a church. Some of you would know the story that he was walking to go to a different church. And then he, as a result of a snowstorm, he found his way into this Methodist church where I believe there would have been fewer people than we have here now. He said less than a dozen people. And there was a lay preacher, the 
scheduled preacher couldn't actually get there. So there was a lay preacher and Spurgeon talks about how he mustn't have had a lot to say because he just after about five minutes kept repeating the same thing. But listen to this account from Spurgeon as he says the lay preacher was looking at him, which you can imagine with like 12 people there, you know who the visitor is. And so he was looking at Spurgeon. Spurgeon records, then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. The text was Isaiah 45, 22. Turn unto me and be saved. And he is saying to Spurgeon, look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word to me it seemed. Oh, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and of the simple faith which looks alone to him. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful relief to we who go about our task proclaiming that it is not dependent upon our perfect articulation of a gospel message, but rather it is dependent upon the supernatural work of God. Our responsibility is to faithfully proclaim that word so that when a lay preacher who 10 minutes before he's about to go up, he didn't even know he was about to go up, he preaches and Spurgeon is there and he is pierced to the heart. And he looks upon his Savior just as the snake was lifted up and the Israelites looked upon it. Spurgeon looks upon Christ and in that instant he could have sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. What a wonderful story. Let's pray and then we will finish by taking the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful mystery of the new birth that you are sovereign over all and that is such a relief to us and yet you have given us the responsibility of being your witnesses of going about and faithfully proclaiming a wonderful christ and it's such a beautiful thing to know that there is no unnecessary pressure that we cannot naturally bring someone to faith it's a supernatural work and you delight in we as your children being about this work as we faithfully go out and you sovereignly use us. And we do pray that there would be many more people here in the city of Canberra who like Spurgeon many, many years ago would stumble across a conversation or stumble across a gathering and would hear with clarity the word of Christ and would be pierced in their heart and would know the hope of salvation and the hope of the resurrection. We thank you for this. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.